Good morning. This is Talking Devils, your favourite Manchester United podcast. I am your host, Wayne Barton, joined by nobody this Monday morning as uh, Paul is still having a couple of weeks off for the summer. Um, we will be back in a couple of weeks. But yesterday, I was asked to name my all-time best Manchester United 11. I thought it might make a good um, podcast to do so. That's why I'm doing it in um, video and audio format today. Um, if you're watching live on YouTube or Facebook, feel free to get your comments in. Not necessarily questions, we can ask questions as well, but um, and I will answer them. But um, yeah, more comments really to do with this because it's the um, all-time number 11, um, or 1 to 11, I should say. If you're watching live on YouTube, Facebook, get your comments and questions in. If you're watching the replay, still say hello, you know, feel free to comment, we do reply to that. Um, and if you're listening on the audio podcast, please be sure to give us a like and uh, review on the platform you're listening on. Okay, so first of all, yeah, I've asked to name my best ever team. And so online, on, on Twitter, I, I did go as far as to say, you know, I'll name my pre-Premier League eleven team because that seemed a little bit easier. Um Without giving it some thought, obviously there's a lot of bias in here. Um, it's not necessarily the best Manchester United team ever. You know, I've been very lucky to work with different players, and there are a couple of them who might grumble that they're not in this team. But I can't name all of them, obviously. So you, unfortunately, you're not going to see Raphael, Fabio, Gordon, Hill, um, Sammy Mack, all players I would love to have in this team. Um, Brian Greenoff, obviously. But I'll talk through the team anyway, and, and you'll. Um, let me see where I'm going with it anyway. So obviously the number one, the number one is Peter Michael. You can see him on screen. There are a couple of contenders for this for me. Ari Gregg does not give, get any, any of the recognition he deserves. Um, Gregg, when he was signed, um, brought a personality to the back line, which was um, very boisterous. He moved the play up really 20 yards because he, he basically hated being cut. He hated goalkeepers, what he would call liners, and that was what Ray Wood was. He was a liner, he was a reliable shot stopper. He would stay on his line. Harry Gregg was brought to basically dominate the box and bring the play up 20 yards, which was obviously condensed United play, a pattern of plays higher up the pitch and made them more attacking. Obviously, one of the Busby Babes, we only really saw that for a couple of months, but you could see the upturning form. Um, was co not coincidental with Greg's arrival. So he transformed the goalkeeping position. He rarely gets the credit, uh, credit that he deserves in that. Um, Alex Stepney followed him and obviously um, was a legendary goalkeeper in his own right and made one of the, possibly the most important save in Manchester United history in 1968. Stepney was not as um, aggressive or vocal as, as Greg, um, but he was very reliable, kind of like Van der Sar, you would say. Van der Sar, obviously, another good shout for this, but Ishmael for me is the number one um, in this team because um, for, for a period, I think he was the best goalkeeper in the world. It was also Harry Gregg 30 years later, really, in that he, um, he installed this sense of personality into the back line and he really did dominate his box. Um, tremendous shot stopper, commanded his area, really good on crosses, um, ortho unorthodox style of saving, orthodox as well. Um, his throws started counter attacks. I don't know if anyone um, listening or watching this um, can remember that but his throws reach the halfway line so very often they'd set off and Chelsea's or geeks running away on the wings um so yeah he was just tremendous also some of the best saves that i've ever seen 
there was one at Anfield in '93. There was one um, against Spurs, which is the famous one. I'm not sure everyone remembers where it was a full stretch, clawing the ball out. Um, obviously, his performance at Newcastle in 1996, which was more, as people remember, as a, an excellent display of shot stopping. And, and it kind of was, but it was more an excellent display of goalkeeping and out of command because not a lot of those saves were outrageously good. Um, I think it was a little later in the year, it might have been a year later when we, we went up to Newcastle. I think we won 1-0 and Schmeichel made another incredible save. And of course, in the treble season, there was the star jump against Inter Milan where, um, or Rapid Vienna in 1996 as well. Just incredible range of saves. Also prone to making an error or two. I think people can remember the Rick against Barnsley um, in the cup, I think it was. And then um, obviously there was the infamous game at Anfield where Schmeichel told him he was going to be sacked. And um, he was reinstated after. For me, he's United's best ever goalkeeper. A lot of people would put Van der Sar in here. They might even put one of the earlier ones like Stemmy or Greg in. I, I mentioned Stemmy and Greg because I want to give them um, that due credit. Um, but yeah, for me, Peter Schmeichel, number one in the team. I think he was just the probably for me the best goalkeeper of all time. And I'm probably going to be heavily biased in that uh, regard with a few of these players. So here's where bias comes in, first and foremost, in the section of the right back, Paul Parker. Um, obviously, you know, Paul does these Monday podcasts with me every week, and um, it's not just through that. I, th- I have thought long and hard with this. You've got Johnny Carey, who is a really good shout to put in this team, Busby's first captain, and a real um, leader of the way that he brought through the generation of the Busby babes and the, the sort of standards example he set at the club. Carey definitely deserves a mention here. Um, Gary Neville as well is in the top five appearance makers at the club, so you've really spoiled for choice with right-backs. And I mentioned Rafa earlier, obviously got very strong fondness for him. Um, I think Paul's natural talent as a defender, I I really do think it was probably naturally better than Gary Neville's, and that's what edges it out for me. And because Beckham's not in this team, and you have to consider all these little things when you're, you're basically putting together your best 11. Um, there's no partnership for, for Neville and Beckham on that right-hand side, and that's where Neville really did shine in partnership with Beckham. Um, Parker, in terms of the way that he was so solid defending, and you would need to with a player that he's got in front of him in this team. Um, Parker, for me, um, I am obviously being very biased with that, but he was an excellent defender, really good footballer. If you watch the, uh, there are a number of goals in the 93-94 season in particular when uh, Ferguson's team was playing some of its best ever football. And they're strong, they were physical, they were powerful, but the football that they played was exceptional. And Paul played a part in, that's very distinctive actually, because they were wearing the green and gold kit. At Sheffield United, there was a great goal and Paul's heavily involved in that. And I think Paul's obviously, um, I think, I think he's involved in the game down at Wimbledon where there was the long passing movement, um, which resulted in Irwin's goal. It's just an excellent footballer. And obviously his couple of goals, I, I have ribbed him about, um, but his goal against Spurs, his first ever goal for United is really good. He, he runs over the defence and takes a, a really good um, pass to finish. And then his infamous goal from, uh, about three yards, or 20 yards against Reading, uh, which hit a bobble and went in the near post. Uh, so Paul, uh, right back in this team for me. And oh, obviously as well, Paul could play centre-back, which um, obviously is not necessary in this team, but because of the way that the team would attack, you would need a th- three men at the back. 
um, occasionally, and Paul could um, move across to, to cover that space without any problem. Number um, three in this team, but obviously probably where the number five in the in the shirt in the team is Rio Ferdinand. Um, he's the right side of centre half for me. Now this is going to be a four four two. I'll, I'll say that from the start, it's a four four two traditional shape, but as Various balances like Park could move in, and I'll, I'll mention some of the other players in a little bit. Uh, Ferdinand, and he'll be partnered by Yapsan in the back. But I'll talk about Ferdinand first. The reason why I'm mentioning them both together is that in um, football history, when you've got two defenders, basically you have a stopper and a sweeper. Ferdinand would generally be the sweeper. Tommy Docherty's team had two sweepers in in Buchan and Greenoff, and uh, I actually had two. Terriers in midfield as well. There wasn't a natural balance in there, but I would have a natural balance of a stopper and a sweeper. Ferdinand would be the sweeper. He was just, he had a little time to settle in at United at the start of his career. He was a, would often get criticised for his lack of concentration. Sometimes he was even tried in centre uh, defensive midfield a couple of times as well. But for, um, Ferdinand, his quality on the ball was fantastic and his reading of the game was immaculate. He reminded me a lot of Maldini in that um, he didn't make tackles. He wasn't a player who gen generally made tackles. He was such a good reader of space. And, um, yeah, he was just such a great, great reader of space. There was a, I, I did an analysis once for a website that I was working on, and it was basically looking at the stats of Rio Fernando over Christmas. And he was so good that... Um, he didn't put tackling, and we played some like seven or eight games, and I, I basically titled the piece "Real Ferdinand's Tackle Free Christmas," which was basically, um, yeah, which, which was where I was coming from with that. With with Ferdinand, such a, a, a fantastic defender at his peak, and he was at his peak for maybe four or five years. Um, he was just incredible. He had also. So I'm always tempted with this to put Paul McGraw in because in terms of natural talent, is McGraw's basically gone no equal, I think, but the other contributing factors mean that he's not in this team. Now, and I'm not just talking about his personal problems, the fact that he wasn't in a team that delivered um, a league title for for one. But McGraw, what I'm mentioning McGraw while I'm talking about Ferdinand is they had a similar way of tackling. If Ferdinand was forced to tackle, it sometimes looked like a player would get past him. He had a really good recovery in the way that he got his tackles in. Um, he was... Um, for me, for a long time, he was the best centre-back in the world. And and even when I, I look at this and I, I'm putting this team together, I often say that he's the best centre-half of all time. I do actually think Stam is, but I, I just I naturally go there with Ferdinand. But I, I think where I'm coming from with that is I think he's the best British centre-half of all time. Um, I just, just a magnificent Rolls-Royce of a defender. So that brings me on to Yap Stam. Um, he was signed from PSV for a record fee for a defender. I think it was 10.75 in 1998. Stam, um, everyone watched the World Cup in awe and expectation to see because you're expecting that you're going to get the best defender in the world. And you could see that he had immense physical strength and an immense physical presence. And he was also known to be rapid in pace as well and good on the ball. So not as traditional a stopper because he could still bring the ball out and he could still play. Um, again, his reading of the game was exceptional. And it was one of the biggest shames that he was sold when he was and he never paired with Ferdinand because Ferdinand and Stam, I know everyone talks about Ferdinand and Vidic. Um, 
with you know a lot of credit as they should because they were an incredible partnership possibly possibly even the best if you're talking partnerships Ferdinand and Riddish have got a shout for that but as far as I'm concerned um Stam as a singular defender is is the best his start was rocky there was a couple of games against Arsenal where he was taken <laughs> he's he, not taken to town but his pace was at the pace of Nicholas and Elka which was a little bit quicker than most really so quicker than Stam's it made him look not very great, but those were in the first couple of um, months. Stan very quickly got adjusted to the pace of the English game. And you can see his presence in United history is very much traced in the fact that we won three consecutive league titles with him in the team. You know, when you say that someone's physically dominant and you say that they're physically powerful and all that, and they, they have this presence, they're easy words to say if you haven't gone back and watched a player play, but... He really, he was a specimen of, of a player and he really was good on the ball. Only scored one goal for United, um, a great volley against Leicester City in, in the treble season. But um, he, he was just unparalleled as a defender and really is one of those that you would have to watch to re watch him at his peak. And some of those full games are on YouTube. You can find them around. There was a very infamous game against um, Inter Milan where I think it's Zamorano backing up into him. And then he basically realizes he's backed into a brick wall. Stan was like that. But he he was just um he was a player who didn't back down in big games. He was always there. There was infamous pictures of him ragging Arsenal players around, which we we definitely needed at the time because that was a very physical Arsenal team. And um, Stan just for me, I, I would say again, this is with a bias. I think and, and you know, people will talk about Maldini and, and Beckenbauer and other players like that, but for me. He's biased because I've watched him play for three years. Um, I think, and how he was at Milan after and Lazio, um, for me, he's the best centre half of all time. He's just absolutely magnificent, and that's why he, he was um, definitely the first defender that I would pick for for my all time team. Dennis Irwin's the player I've picked at left back. Irwin could play in both full back positions. Again, when we talk about underrated players, um, he, he really is, and a lot of people now in the modern age, they do rate him. And they do say, oh, you know, Irwin's uh, a great player and he's in many people's best ever teams, but he's still underrated because of his quality as a footballer. And he could take free kicks, took set pieces whenever Beckham or Giggs wasn't around. And um, he was probably more reliable, but certainly than Giggs. Um, he's great on free kicks. And I, I think, I, I'm pretty sure I only saw him miss one penalty as well. Um, but he was a, a great, great player, really dependable. Score one of those players. I think uh, Fergie said that he, he never had a, a, a game where he saw him play under seven out of ten. He never saw him embarrassed by anyone, and this is despite you know, you wouldn't say that he was quickest, the quickest of players, but you wouldn't see him caught out by an opponent, you wouldn't see them be able to do tricks past him and everything like that because he was so um relentless in terms of his consistency. Um, he was great in the in the 92, 93, 93, 94 seasons. Just a fantastic addition. Could play either fullback position, a definite fullback. You're not going to find him going into the middle or anything like that. Um, but he's so dependable and reliable behind the players that he was playing with and really good at joining the combination players with the midfielders and the centre-backs as well. Um, just a, a definite for any... For in, as far as I'm concerned... If I was wobbling over Parker, I might well have put Irwin on that side and put Ever in the side. Um, or Roger Byrne. Irwin, for me, definitely gets in any any all-time best United side. 
as does George Best, who I've selected to play on the right-hand side of the midfield in this team, although Best is going to play wherever he wants to play, just as well that I've got the balance that I've got in the other three players in the midfield. Best um, was a total footballer, and what I mean by that is how envisioned by Di Stefano or Johan Cruyff, he would play everywhere on the pitch. He was, in fact, heavily influenced by Di Stefano. His work rate in the friendlies that Real Madrid played at Old Trafford after Munich, best would watch Di Stefano and marvel at the work rate. You know, the, the best player on the pitch is working the hardest, and that's the way that George Best played. Um, his, his level of magic and his level of wizardry, there isn't a player in United history that compares to him, not even Cantona, not even Ronaldo. There isn't, not even Berbatov. People talk about Berbatov and put him in a category of his own. There isn't a player who compares with the level of magic that George Best was doing because he was so far ahead of his peers. He was doing things like scoring corner kicks, practicing them in the morning just because he wanted to do it and, and then scoring them in the afternoon. Um, one of four players that have played for the club to win the Ballon d'Or award and the European Player of the Year. He, he, his best year was nice. 60, well, you could say it was the, the year in which he emerged. It's funny with George Best because he was so good so quickly that you had the likes of Paddy Crerand and other players in the first division saying that even after one season in the first division, he was the best player in the league. And it was really only the advent of European competition where you were finding out how good these players were in 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 on the world stage, basically. And best at being with Northern Ireland wasn't always going to have that opportunity to show um, that, that ability on the world stage. So best um, would shine for United in Europe, which he did in the 1966 European Cup game at Benfica. Um, well, that was the game where he announced himself to the world. You can see that footage on YouTube. He, the, the first goal, I think, is and I think it's the second where he dances through the defence. You don't even think it's physically possible. Best was doing things like this for fun. Um, in the build-up to the European Cup final in 1968, he was telling players all season, and it was because he was writing a book at the time, and he was writing a passage in the book where he was talking about the kind of goal that he wanted to score, and it was basically like a long ball would come from the goalkeeper. He would trap it with his backside, and then he would dribble around the defence and scoring, dribble around the goalkeeper and then scoring the empty net, maybe back heel it on the line. He was basically talking about that before what he did in the European Cup final. So if you can imagine... In 1968, where the ball is pumped up to him and he gets the ball and he runs at the defence and he nutmegs the defender and he goes around the goalkeeper, in the blink of an eye, he's probably got vision in front of him, something which he's manifested into reality, which makes that goal even more incredible and more romantic. Um, obviously, he doesn't have the time to, to stand and back heel it in, but he does and expects that thing which is just roll the ball over the line and tease the goalkeeper into thinking he's got a chance in saving it. Uh, just typical George Best. Uh, and then, you know, he, he was a fantastic player even after Busby retired. Uh, people said that, he, you know, that was his pinnacle and he dropped. I would urge anyone to look back at the Frank O'Farrell era, the first few months of when um, Frank was in charge, saw some of George Best, best ever um performances but also his best ever goals we look at the highlight reel the goals against West Ham where he, he dribbles past Bobby Moore the goal against Sheffield United where he, he goes past everyone those goals are from 
that era of football. Um, so best was it is best obviously had a, a pronounced decline after with with United's decline, a lot of struggle in there, which I did cover in the book. I'm not going to go over it here because we're here to celebrate what a great player he was. For me, I still think Best is the best player in our history. He plays on the right of a midfield four, but he's effectively moving into a, a front three as well, but he, he's supporting everyone all over the pitch. So the midfield two, the midfield pair that I've got, first and foremost, I've gone with Brian Robson. Now, obviously, you've got Roy Keane, you've got Paul Scholes. For me, it's a very tough one because I think Roy Keane was the personality of um, Alex Ferguson's team. Brian Robson was, he, he could do everything that Keane could do and a little bit more. Like Keane was massively underrated, don't get me wrong. And, you know, you could have a different conversation on a different day and you could put Roy Keane in this side. But for me, Brian Robson could do everything that Keane could do and a little bit more. He was a great playmaker as well, um, not necessarily in the spraying the ball around kind of thing, but he set the tone of the play. He was um, the kind of player, Paul Parker often says that when you looked at, up the, the team lineup and when you're coming out of the tunnel and you saw that Brian Robson was in your team even more than Cantona, but when you saw Brian Robson in your team, you thought you were a goal up. Um, and quite often the opposite, if he wasn't play, playing United, might feel like they were a goal down. That's how everyone looked when they saw Robson. He really did feel like the heartbeat of that Manchester United team. Um, seminal performances, obviously, against Barcelona, against F uh, Liverpool in the FA Cup semi-final. Um, he also scored in the FA Cup final as well. Just a fantastic captain for United. Um, scorer of great goals earlier in his career. Uh, really physically dominant. For a period in the mid-80s, um, and only the shoulder injury ruled him out of having this conversation at a more pronounced length. They were talking about him in, in the same breath as Maradona, you know, when, the, when they were coming head-to-head, -head, obviously you know, he had the better of it in 84, and his absence in 1986 is very obvious in the way that Maradona strolled through the, the team and scored the goal that he did. Um, people often lament the absence of Robson in that regard, as well they are right to do. Um, I think Robson edges it in front of Skulls as well because um, people don't often think... Skulls, don't get me wrong, I wouldn't argue against anyone who would put him in an all-time team because he's definitely got justification to be there on merit. But I remember the earlier version of Paul Skulls where he was struggling to find a place in the team where he would play in the hole because Ferguson was trying to play him in the, the front two or... Even in the bigger games earlier, like in the treble season, for example, you would find Nicky Butt often preferred, preferred to Skulls. Robson commanded a first-team place throughout the entirety of his career and more often than not um, was the player that that team was built around um, for a decade, really. And I don't think there's any more that needs to be said about Brian Robson in that regard. His partner in the midfield in this team is Duncan Edwards. Um, people often, when they're making um, a team an all-time 11, they don't know where to put Edwards in because they say that he he didn't play as long as he should have done. Now, Edwards played in what would be traditionally known at the time as a halfback. Even that was a bit different because you would have traditionally the left half and the right half. The right half would be the attacking midfielder and the left half would be the defensive linchpin. Edwards did do that, but he, he sort of he was kind of like the right off in left off basically because so much of the play went through him. He was um so diligent and professional 
he had a great attitude towards personal development in terms of like learning from his mistakes and utilizing the lessons that he'd learned. Um, if he had a flow, he was too omnipresent. He tried to be everywhere too much, but he was sort of ironing those flaws out at the time of Munich to become the more, he was more economic in the way that he was um, putting his energy into the team. Basically, he was learning that he didn't have to be everywhere all the time, that he could trust his teammates to get them out of the mire as well. Um, and he was only 21, obviously. I remember, you know, people were talking about him in terms of being the best player in the world or the best player of all time at that point, um, even as early as his introduction into the team. So a lot of people are tempted to put Edwards in the defence sometimes when they're naming an all-time 11, but he only really, I think he played there in an emergency only a couple of times, obviously once in the 57 Cup finally dropped back because of the injury to Ray Wood um, and Jackie Blanchflower went in goal. Um, Edwards moved back in an emergency, but he didn't really play there um, apart from that. He would play. He did play in a number of different positions: inside forward, centre forward, even outside, um, outside left, outside the outside, basically the winger positions. He, he did. He was tried in those a, a couple of times, um, but he was effectively, you would say, deep line midfielder, setting the tone of the play. Um, Ian Robson. It would be basically like for anyone who watched Inson Keane in the 93, 94, 94, 95, and they were enthralled by. The energy and commanding performance robson and edwards would have been like that times two they were that that it would have been that um devastating a combination in there um on the left hand side now this is a very difficult decision to make ryan giggs obviously the most decorated footballer in english football history and was one of my favorite players growing up and for a long time I would have thought no question about putting him in there altogether. But when you're putting together a team like this, <laughs> it's difficult to know who you are, uh, where you put players, the player you're leaving out, basically. So um, the player that I've picked to play on the left-hand side is Bobby Charlton. Um, Bobby Charlton, for a long time, was a record appearance player at Maker United, 758. The record goal scorer at United with 249. One of my good friends, Tony Park, will dispute those um, records as well. He, he's right to do because they don't include the Anglo-Italian Cup and other um, smaller competitions that the club don't recognise. But regardless of that, Charlton was the, the long-time opinion holder until Ryan Giggs overtook that in 2008. Um, Charlton did play a lot of his career outside left, the left-hand side. He played, obviously, in the forward position. He played in midfield as well. Um, it was central midfield where he moved to when um, United won the European Cup. Um, Charlton, obviously a fantastic player, multi-skilled in terms of he could use both of his feet. Everyone knows the story, I'm sure, of Jimmy Murphy taking him back outside Old Trafford and teaching him to, to kick with both feet, to, to develop his strength, taking him onto the Old Trafford pitch and making him um, do long passes and then collect the ball to give him a lesson on the economy of passing. Basically, um, he, he was another player who, who sort of learned all these lessons and took them on board and became a diligent, immaculate professional. And obviously what he went through in, with Munich and surviving and coming back and and playing to such a high level as he did and winning the Ballon d'Or and the World Cup with England um, is the most romantic football career of all time. And you, you cannot 
not have a place for that in your Manchester United team because he's the physical embodiment of that. In in you know in a way that many of these players are. Duncan Edwards certainly is. George Best certainly is. These are players who do embody everything um, that's good about the United spirit. Um, there's really not much more to say about Bobby Charlton, is there? Because he's just a, a magnificent, magnificent player um, who should be every Manchester United fan's all-time eleven. Now, the front two is where it really gets interesting because you've got Dennis Law, Wayne Rooney, who's the leading all-time uh, all-time goal scorer um, at United. You've got Ruud van Nistelrooy, who was one of my favourites um, growing up. Absolute riches that we've got in attack to to pick from. I haven't really picked two conventional attackers in mind. Um, the first of um, the two strikers I've got is Cristiano Ronaldo. Um, Ronaldo is picked. A lot of people might not pick him in this because they would say, well, you're picking him for what he did at United and not for what he contributed to the football, the sport of football in general. But I am picking him for what he did at United because for a while he was unplayable and obviously he was the player around which our attack was built for two or three years. Wayne Rooney sacrificed a lot of himself in that and possibly even some of his own development for the progress of Ronaldo. Um, But those who can remember watching Ronaldo at his peak, there was a period where it was like he couldn't get into the ground late. He couldn't get into the ground 15 minutes late. Not that you'd want to anyway watching that team, but if you did, if you got into the ground 15 minutes, United were already 2-0 up and Ronaldo had scored them both. And then they just coast through the rest of the game. He was that dependable, that reliable. He... um, once he had the spell where basically after he came back from the 2006 World Cup, he developed a lot of um, internal mental strength from that because he was getting some dog's abuse in the 05 or 06 season where everyone was seeing him as a show pony and so he was getting kicked all over the place. It was that famous game um, where we played at City. I think it was just about when we won the title for the first time um, in that second, that third great era of Ferguson's. Michael Ball kicked him all over the pitch and stamped on his chest and took off his shirt and showed the, the bruise marks on there. And we showed how much he'd physically developed in that time. Um, but he, he was also developing a lot of character because obviously he was getting a lot of booze after the World Cup in, in 2006. Everything that Ferguson convinced him to stay and build that team around him for the next three years. And there was that other developmental jump, which I'm sure everyone's heard the story of Rennie Mullenstein taking him side early in the 2007-8 season when he was suspended and working on his finishing and it was more about taking Ronaldo aside and saying you don't have to try and score every goal, uh, don't have to try and score the perfect goal, try and score every goal and the perfect goal will arrive in that number and his goal tally increased exponentially. Incidentally as well, I do think Ronaldo's a catalyst for a major positional change in football. If you look at United's um, strategy that season it wasn't until Barcelona came up against United and they saw the way that Ronaldo was playing, that Messi got converted into that sort of free role um, of an attacker, which Ronaldo exploited to such devastating um, consequence. You can see Messi's numbers jump up as well, exponentially after that as well. Um, Ronaldo, all right, his, his return hasn't been fantastic, but he's still been the best striker in that team. He's shown the standard of which is to be expected at the club and Obviously, people remember his return um, in quite vivid 
fashion, really. You know, the game against Newcastle where he came back and scored twice and seeing him become the leading goal scorer of all time at Old Trafford and seeing him score two more hat-tricks in the way that they did. Um, okay, it's been a mixed time since he returned and at the time of recording this podcast, you don't know what's going to happen with him in the future. Um, but for, for a period of time, particularly in 2006 to 2009, when you're watching him develop into the best player in the world, and he was that for a long period after that as well, um, it was just a joy to watch and a privilege to watch a player um, that far ahead of his peers be as good as he was. So that's the last place in this team is coming uh, up now, and that's for, um, <laughs> again, I could have picked Dennis Law in this. I could have picked Wayne Rooney. I could have picked Eric Cantona. You could pick Tommy Taylor as well. Dennis Violet, another shout in there. I have to go for Eric Cantona. I'll pick, uh, for people wanting to be, I'll pick a more um, iconic picture there than that scrambled potato picture that was just up. Um, Eric Cantona, not a conventional striker again. So in this team, you've basically got Schmeichel Parker, Fernand Stam, Irwin, Best, Robson, Edwards. Charlton, Cantona, Ronaldo. So you, you're going to have a floating front, front four of best Cantona, Ronaldo, Charlton, all interchanging positions. Robson and Edwards are going to anchor the midfield and you've got a red loop defence to back it up. Cantona, where is he going to play? Probably in a hole supporting best and Ronaldo when they make their run forward because he's not going to play off the shoulder of the defender. Ronaldo's more likely to do that, really. Cantona, um, he's not as talented as not not as talented, he was the most talented player I saw play live in terms of um, the air and aura that he brought to a team. And you have to be very clear and, and careful with the distinction that you make with Cantona because obviously Ronaldo's a better player, obviously Best's a better player. Um, you could make that argument for Law, you could make it for Rooney even, but Cantona brought something to a team that um, was transformational in a way that I've never seen before or since, really. I think he changed... Well, I, I, I'm the title of the book after he changed English football. I'm sure he did. Um, he's, for me, possibly the most important player in Manchester United history in the transformative impact that he had on it. He played in a withdrawn striker role, so he would have him behind Mark Hughes, basically, um, serving as this pivot, the, the classic number 10, as it's known these days. Um so good at breaking down the play in front of him. Now, you look at any great United team, what makes them truly thrilling is when they get in behind defences. We all remember Kanchelskis and Giggs breaking through the back line of Ronaldo and Rooney using the pace to get behind the defence. And that's when United are at the best. But Kananar could play in front of a defence and break it down with no problem whatsoever. And you know how difficult that is because you're crying out for a player like that in today's game. He was just a magician. Um, his ability on the ball was incredible. Um, his influence over the team that he moved into and the next generation, because you've obviously got the likes of Beckham and Giggs who all adored him and idolised him, and they're all picking up traits from him. You know, the confidence, the arrogance, the way that they would stay back after training because he was staying back after training. He was instilling a discipline that was felt by the club over the next generation and half and obviously was part of, which was at the time, the most dominant period in Manchester United history. And people forget that. So you remember the Busby Babes and you remember the period which followed, but four titles in five seasons, Cannonall was the catalyst for that without any shadow of a doubt. Um, it wasn't in school 
the goals in the 30s every season. I think his highest was 25 or 26, maybe in 1994. But his manner of timing was so incredible that he was destined to play at a stadium named the Theatre of Dreams, basically, because of, you know, it was just incredible, his sense of time, and he would pop up in, it could go quiet in a game, and you'd know that, that he was just waiting for the script um, to include his intervention, basically, as we saw many, many times. And that was the value, not always winning 5-0 in Cannonaro or orchestrating a great performance, but sometimes winning 1-0 in the last minute because Cannonaro scored the winner. And we saw that many times. Um, just an incredible, incredible player who won it, one of the most influential players of all time and uh, a great privilege to have seen him play for United. Um, he might not get in everyone's best 11 and probably not in most, to be honest. It's very difficult to know where to put him in, but I am exercising privilege of being someone who watched him play and, and choosing my favourites, just as I did with Paul Parker at right back, and that's what he's for after all, isn't it, picking a team like this? A um, couple of comments coming in from Tony who's been watching. Thank you so much, Tony, for watching. Ferdinand and Stam, you've agreed with that. Robbo holds the most rec uh, the record for most goals for a true box-to-box -box midfielder, over 100 goals. Yeah, 99 for United. I still remember his last game where everyone was trying to get him that 100th goal. Um, and Duncan Edwards played in roughly the same number of games and the same number of seasons as Eric Cantona. That's enough to make a call on him, one of the greatest. Yeah, absolutely. I've, I've made that argument as well. Ronaldo in his first era, a similar length of time. Um, you've got that argument to make for both of them, and certainly with Duncan Edwards for sure. But yeah, that's my um, 11. Schmeichel, Parker, Ferdinand, Stam, Irwin, Best, Robson, Edwards, Charlton, Cantona, Ronaldo. Um, I'm, I'm going to try and get some of the other hosts for the channel to to do something similar and name their best eleven while they um, while we've got some summer break to to sort of filter fill time and do something like this. Um, it's been a bit weird carrying a podcast by myself for 37 minutes, so I hope it's not been too jarring to listen to without um, Paul Parker or indeed another host alongside me to, to sort of rip and bounce off. If you've enjoyed watching this, uh, please feel free to join in on social media. Tell me if you disagree with my team. Obviously, I'm sure that you will. Uh, <laughs> plenty of you will disagree. I know that people are saying, what are you picking Paul Parker for? But, you know, that's my team. I, I, I've got a reason. I still think he, he's worthy of his uh, place in that team. He did win a couple of title medals, after all. Um, and Cantona, obviously, is a, um, a controversial one for some. Even Ronaldo, I think some people don't like picking him in um, because of the way that he left and the way that things are at the present. Um, but that's my 11, none, nonetheless. If you've enjoyed listening, give us a nice rating or review on the podcast, um, on the platform you're listening on. Join in the comment section afterwards. Feel free to name your team. I'll join in the conversation with you um, when I see the comments. And in the meantime, Paul and I will be back in a couple of weeks. And I think Keen. Lee Lawrence and Phil Mosher back on Friday night to do their first podcast of the season. Thanks for listening. Thanks for watching. And we will be back very soon.